Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it, it may be that Joseph will hate us and he'll pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and they fell before him and they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, listen to this, these next couple of verses. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you. Listen to this. This is important. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin. Now, we're going to do something different. We're going to flip over Exodus chapter 1. Go to Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Lord, I ask that you would speak tonight as we dig into, as we start this series on the Exodus and Jesus in the Exodus. Lord, would you speak to us about the times when you call us to the desert, when you call us to an Egypt? And Lord, would you speak to us about the times when you are begin to move in our life and free us? Move in this place, Lord. I thank you that we have you, a God who relates. It's in Christ that we pray, amen. So back in Genesis chapter 50, let me give you a little background. Some of you are very familiar with the story of Joseph. He's the one that had the coat with all the colors. They've even made Broadway plays about him. And so you may be very familiar with Joseph. Here's the short story. In the biblical narrative, what do we have? The, the, the book of Genesis, 50 chapters. We have creation, Creation, where God moves and he makes order out of chaos. To begin with, I've been listening to the Bible Project's new New Year's releases. They are like lights out. You don't need me. You got them. But thank you for being here anyway. This is great. I'm glad we can at least hang out. Uh, but they're, they're so good. And they, they picture it like this. They said, at the beginning, God made the earth and there was too much water, so he made some land. By the time that we get to, to Noah and the flood, there's too much land, and so God brings some more water. 
And, uh, and God begins this cycle of creating, and people fall, and then he redeems, and people fall. And pretty quickly, we get into the story of Abraham by Genesis chapter 12. We see Abram come on the scene. He's the original patriarch. He's the original father of our faith. Father Abraham, he had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you, if you know the song. So let's just praise the Lord. But we... Uh, we, we got Abraham, the original father of the faith. He starts in Genesis 12. Now, if you're doing the math, you got from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50 to get all the way to Joseph. And so what happens? We hear the story of Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob. And then we see Jacob's story kind of play out. And eventually Jacob has a son named Joseph. Joseph is the pride and joy. Joseph is doted on. Joseph is picked on. Joseph finally gets sold into slavery by his brothers. Well, where does Joseph end up? He ends up in Egypt, and it is a long, sordid journey of many chapters to get there. But when he gets to Egypt, he lands in a guy named Potiphar's house. Potiphar is this, this like, next in command to Pharaoh. He's, like, in charge of Pharaoh's prison and some other stuff. He's really important to Pharaoh. And so Joseph becomes number one in command in Potiphar's home. And so we start to see Joseph is sold into a bad place, but God lifts him up. And so we start to say, okay, I'm forming this theology that when bad things happen, God's going to come in and just make it all better. But then Potiphar's wife is like, Potiphar, you look okay. Joseph, you look a-okay. And so she like makes the move and he's like, sorry, lady, you got a ring. I don't, like we shouldn't. And besides your husband, trust me. And she's like, it's cool. I like you. And so it's like pretty, it's pretty serious back and forth until eventually, if it was modern day, he would be falsely accused of sexual assault charges. And so he is thrown now into Potiphar's prison. Once he's in prison, if you read the story of Joseph, you're thinking, poor kid, like it, he just can't catch a break. He was sold into slavery. He got rose to power. Then he got falsely accused. Now he's in prison. When he's in prison, a guy has a dream. Two guys have a dream. He interprets the dreams. And one of the guys is going to get out of prison uh, because he interpreted the dream. And the dream said he was going to get out of prison. And he said, when you get out of prison, don't forget me. And what does the guy do? He forgets him. And so Joseph is now stuck in prison longer. And you know what's incredibly absent from a lot of Joseph's narrative, the words of God speaking to him. We read and read and read the story. And you don't see these big blocks of the Lord appearing to him and the Lord speaking to him. And so it leaves the mind to wonder, like, where is God? Where's God when this righteous, godly man who had some rough edges that need to be, like, knocked off and, and polished and made better, like his arrogance and some of those things, but you just wonder, where is the Lord? Because he's being a faithful kid. Well, finally, one day, Pharaoh himself has a dream, and no one can interpret the dream. He has two dreams, actually, and the guy who got out, who, who uh, Joseph told him, like, here's the interpretation of your dream, and you're going to get out of prison, and don't forget me. He was like, Pharaoh, 
I kind of forgot about a guy, but he's really good with dreams. And Joseph gets called in, and Pharaoh tells him these dreams about these fat and skinny cows and some corn and all those kinds of things. And Joseph says, oh, God has said that there's going to be famine in your land for seven years, but before that famine, there's going to be a ton of rain, and the crops are going to be incredible for seven years. And Pharaoh said, you're amazing. Come out of jail. And so he comes out of jail. He becomes number two in the land. And that's when, we, when he finally meets up with his brothers. And so he meets up with his brothers. His brothers come down to fast forward through the story. You can imagine um, it's like walking in and seeing one of your old boyfriend or girlfriends after a while. You're like, oh, I didn't expect to see you. This is super uncomfortable. Like the brothers walk in and they're like, they didn't recognize him, but he recognizes them. It's a pretty incredible story. Uh, and so you should just go back and read the story. But there's this moment where Joseph, instead of thinking, I hate those guys, I've been waiting to get them for years, steps off into a room and weeps because he's overjoyed to finally be reunited with his family. Long story longer, the family then eventually moves down to Egypt to avoid the plague because they're in that seven years of drought and famine, and the family is now all united in the safety of Egypt. That's when we get to this final scene. Jacob has died. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Jacob, the father of Joseph. Jacob has finally died, and Joseph's brothers, the part we just read, are saying, now that dad's gone, because he really respected dad, now that dad's gone, is he going to attack us? And that's where we get the famous dialogue that we read, those verses I told you to pay attention to in 19, 20, and 21. And then eventually, Joseph is about to die in this scene, but what's fascinating is Joseph says, God brought us to Egypt, but he does not intend to keep us here. Now, what does that tell you? This is so fascinating. All the years of life not going like Joseph thought it was going to go, and as an old man, he's still clinging to the promises of God. God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am going to take you to a promised land. This kid who had seen low after low after low, as an old man, still believes that God is good and he will keep his word. So the question I think you have to raise is, why the call to Egypt why, would, and I call this a necessary desert. Why did God make him go to Egypt? Why did God make him go through all of this? You know, the, 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 I'm just going to tell you, I've told, I've told some of you this story, but I'm going to tell you again. Um, I worked at this church called Roswell Street Baptist Church. It was a great church in the Marietta Square near in Marietta. I, uh, I worked there. I went to church there as a kid. Our high school graduation was there. And then I went on staff there. It was like local boy does good. And now he's on staff. And uh, it was my first, my first ministry. I was, do, I was doing college ministry and we had to wear a coat and tie every day. And so I would have like a, like a t-shirt and jeans in my car and I would change in my car and then go to a campus because you couldn't be seen without your coat and tie on. Um, I made $21,500 a year and I was engaged to Heather. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not sure why her dad ever said that I could marry her because um, she was in school. So anyway, 
We were, we were filthy rich. Uh, but anyway, I went, I went and I asked my boss one day, I said, hey, can I have a raise? And he said, no, it'll be good on your resume that you worked here. And I was like, strike one for you, two and three, like you're out. Um, and so it was, it was not good on my resume that I worked there. Nobody cared. Uh, and so, but about that time, a guy called from this other church called the church at West Cobb because it was in West Cobb. And, uh, and so he was a super clever name, um, and so he called and he said, hey, we're looking for a youth pastor. And I was like, does it pay more than $21,500? Um, actually, I didn't say that, but I was really hoping that. And he said, yes, it does. It pays $35,000. And I was like, $35,000? We're rich. We have so much money. And so Heather and I had been married for like a hot second. And I went on staff at this church. And it was an incredible church. Until one day he called me and my boss called me in and said, you have two weeks and then you're out of here. And some of you have heard this story. It was this terrible spiraling out of control. People, when you get, when you get fired from a church, people are like, what sin did you commit? And, uh, and I was like, he committed the sin, not me. Like, it was like a, like it, it was just a terrible story, long story, too long for right now. But <clears throat> the day that I got let go, this other church, Hope Church, they called me and called me and called me. And they called me over and over and over again. And I was like, I don't really want to work with you guys. And they were like, we want you. And, uh, and we'll, we'll, even, we'll even give you a raise. And I was like, they want me. And I'm going to get like, now we're going to be able to like have cable and stuff. It's going to be amazing. And so like, um, so they like, I did not, I just was like, I don't think I need to work there. And I ended up after I had three months severance, so that church took good care of me. I had three months severance. On like day number like 84, I was like, okay, fine, I will work with you. And I went on staff there, or at the end of that three months, there was no way. If you ever get three months severance, don't jump ship early. Enjoy that three months severance. Okay, line up a job, but like then enjoy your three months. And so then I went on staff at that church. And at this point, I'm thinking like the story, like Joseph's story, if you read the whole story, it starts becoming a little bit relatable. Because you're thinking, I'm just trying to do the right thing, and bad thing after bad thing keeps happening. As I go on staff at this church, it was great for a few months. I helped them revitalize it. Like, we, re, we redid everything in that church. I wrote curriculum. I, like, I, would, I locked my, if you know me at all, you know this is like a terrible job for me. I had a downstairs office, and I would just type and write curriculum all day. No interactions with humans. It was not my wheelhouse. But, like, I did, I wrote, like, pages and pages of curriculum and Bible study material and all kinds of stuff, and it was great. And then the guy, a guy walked into my office one day, and, uh, and he said, Thomas, it's just not working out. And I was like, no, I guess it's not. And so this time we had like a mutual split. And, but I knew in the process of being at that church that it wasn't the right thing and that God was calling me to something else. But I didn't know that it was going to end like that. Now, if I hadn't gone to Roswell Street Baptist and worked there. I would have never gotten the call from the church at West Cobb. I had never gotten the call from the church at West Cobb. I would have never gotten the call from Hope Church. But now after Hope Church, I'm in like stranded land, and, uh, and I get three months severance again. They took good care of me. And then eventually, after no one would call me, I called out to the Lord over and over and over again. And this church called Johnson Ferry Baptist Church said, we'll give you an interview. And I was like, you guys will give me an interview? Nobody will give me an interview. And so I, my hope was renewed, and I had my interview with Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. And it was great. And I worked there for 13 years. But about six years before I left, 
the guys talked to me about, our senior pastor was Bryant right at the time, and he talked to me about this church that he was going to plant in Buckhead. It was going to be something, something Buckhead. And I, he was like, that's where I grew up, Thomas. That's, uh, that's where I want to plant a church. And so I would drive around downtown Buckhead with him, and we would visit with other pastors, and we would talk about this church that Johnson Ferry is going to plant in Buckhead. And so he, like, we, we would meet with all these guys, and we would get buy-in from people um, like a couple of the Presbyterian churches around, um, like Westside and, um, and some of the other folks around. And we were just like, we were like would you, are you cool if we plant this church? Everybody was cool that we planted this church. We planted this church, and then we didn't have a pastor for that church, so I would go preach at that church every once in a while because it met on Sunday nights, and we met in Buckhead Church's church. It was like Buckhead Church's church, church plant in Buckhead Church. And so we met there, and I would go preach every once in a while on a Sunday night. And then one day in our staff meeting, uh, Bryant said, hey, we think we found a guy to pastor that church. He's from Birmingham. His name's Jason Dees. And I was like, well, bring him in. Let's interview him. So I interviewed Jason Dees. I was like, I don't know if I like this guy. And, uh, and so then, like, we got to sit down. Me and, like, four guys sat down with he and his wife, Paige, who was very pregnant at the time. And we said, hmm, let's interview them. And I asked him all kinds of hard questions, and it was great. It was really fun because I was like, I'll never see him again. And... Uh, and so we asked him all kinds of hard questions. It was a pretty fun moment. And so in the interview process, uh, I thought, maybe he is the guy. Then we hired him, brought him on, and I got to know him. And I was like, I kind of like him. And he was like, I kind of like him. We went on some staff retreats together, he and Heather and Paige and a bunch of others of us. And so we had this great time all getting to know each other. And in the process, you now know that if I hadn't have been at Roswell Street Baptist Church, and got paid $21,500 a year and couldn't live on it, had to go somewhere else, went to that other church and things were great, but then I got fired from that church for no good reason. And once I got fired from that church, I went to this other little church that was like a little landing pad for a little while and then kind of got fired from that church too. Um, it wasn't going so well. And then uh, and then, if it wasn't for the graciousness of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, they were just must have been desperate or like we can't find anybody else, he's breathing. Um, then they, if they had not have interviewed me and let me on, I would have never seven years into that job, been talking about planting a church in Buckhead, and then eventually being in the crew that brought Jason Dees on, and then eventually becoming friends with Jason Dees, and then fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, standing in front of you tonight. So, that story is filled with incredible heartbreak, tears of, do we have enough to live on? heartbreak of a church splitting when they were told I wasn't going to be on staff anymore. A grown man yelling at me after preaching one service before the next service with his blood vessels coming out of his neck telling me I was nothing more than a fundamentalist and he couldn't believe that someone would believe the book of Genesis is real. Heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. And it gets real existential for a while when you wonder, is God ever going to come through? But in the back of your mind, you've seen him work enough that you start to understand there are times that he puts you in a, in a necessary desert. 
He needs you to be in a hard place to get you to the right place. That's exactly the story of Joseph. God needed Joseph to be in hard place after hard place after hard place to get not just Joseph, but all the Israelites to the next place. One day, I was telling my friend Scott, when I got let go from that first church, we don't really talk about the second one, but the first church, when I got let go from that church, I was telling about it, and I was so mad at that pastor, and I was talking all about this, and Scott stopped me. And he said, Thomas, you know God could have stopped this, right? And that was a terrifying thought. Because I thought people had put me in those places. But Scott said something that was worse than a person putting me in a bad spot. When Scott said, you know, Thomas, that God could have stopped you from getting fired, that God let you get fired, that God may have even ordained, how dare you believe this, but God may have even ordained you getting fired. That was a terrifying thought because now I had to see a different side of God that I didn't want to see. It's much easier to read the story of Joseph and think God could have stopped Joseph from being sold into slavery and falsely accused and left in prison, but clearly God had a story he was working out. And so God, like, it's, it's okay for that to have happened to Joseph, but it's not okay for God to have done that to me. And after wrestling and being mad and sad and confused, I came to the conclusion that Scott was right. The same God who let Joseph be sold into slavery, falsely accused, left in prison, finally to at the right moment be raised to power in order to rescue the family that betrayed him. That same God who was easy for me to believe the story as I read it in the Bible was doing some similar things to me. He could have stopped all that pain, but instead he allowed and brought that pain into my life. That was harder for me to accept than a human doing bad things to another human. And so now I was left with a really existential question of were all these deserts necessary? Were all these Egypts necessary? On this side of it, standing in with you, being friends with you, doing life with you, helping serve with you in ministry, I would tell you all day long, all of those were worth it. You guys are worth all of those pains that went on. Every one of them. The conversations we have, the way I see God moving in your life, like the impact that you're having on the city, I would say all day long, but at the time it was really hard because I didn't know you existed. But Joseph, when he says that God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, and he said he was going to do it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, 
God will surely visit you and he will carry you up and he will carry you out of here and you shall carry my bones when you leave. When Joseph said that, he's living proof that after all the bumps and bruises that God brought in his life, he still believed that God was good and God was capable and God's plan is better than any plan he could concoct. But then, there are times that he brings us to a place, but we're not supposed to stay there. And that's the whole story of the book of Exodus. They meant to go to Egypt. They needed to go to Egypt. They were supposed to go to Egypt, but they weren't supposed to live in Egypt. And so somewhere between 150 and 200 years later, we get to Exodus chapter 1. That's about the time gap. So between 150, 200 years later, Exodus 1 starts. Uh, and once Exodus 1 begins, uh, what we see is that the people have grown, which is a prophecy that God told Abraham would happen. Abraham, he took Abraham out of his tent one night and he said, look up at the stars. Can you number the stars? Because that's how many your descendants will be. And so he goes and he, uh, he, God begins to be faithful to his word. The people are growing and multiplying, but the people become a threat to Pharaoh. And so what we see in verse 8 now in, of, of Exodus 1, now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves slaves. Now, if God moves in your life and he takes you to a hard place and you're faithful in that hard place because that's what you're called to do. When God takes you to a hard place, you, you own it and you're there. And it's best to square up with him and say, you brought me here. What are you doing? And just, Lord, help me to be faithful in the process. And so that was Joseph's story. He was faithful where God put him. He bloomed, the old expression is, he bloomed where God planted him. The Israelites did the same. They bloomed where God planted them. But then there came a point when the pressures began to mount. And you have to ask the question, why would God let the pressures in your life mount? Here's why. When life becomes so unbearable and you are trying to be faithful, it is God awakening your heart to a new work that he is about to do. Every time throughout the scriptures, when the pressures begin to mount and people become just pressed and oppressed and pushed down, it is God awakening their hearts that he might begin a new work. And you know why he has to awaken your heart? Because it's really easy to get comfortable in Egypt. Things are going great at your job, and then one day you're like, 
man, this thing happened and this thing happened and I don't know about this and I don't know about this. And everything in you is like, but the paycheck's good and the benefits are good and this is good and this is good. And you hear sermons about so-and-so quit their job and began doing this and you're like, change church now. Um, like, don't want to hear that sermon anymore. And you, you like, you start to, I'm just giving it for instance, but then all of a sudden it's like you can't escape this idea of is God doing something? And it's the pressure that begins to mount and if that pressure had never mounted, your heart would never have awaken to the idea of maybe God is moving you to something different. And so, I think when we see the pressures mounting, we need to remember that it is God's mercy in our lives. In Hosea chapter 2, 14, it says this. It says, the Lord says to, to Hosea, Hosea say to the people or say to your bride, I'm going to take you into the desert when God calls you into the desert and he puts pressures on your life and your life begins to get hot and uncomfortable and the Lord is the one calling you into that place, it's because he's calling you to something new that he's going to do. He might be shaking you from sin. He might be shaking you from your past. He might be doing a refining work, but it's because he's going to do something new in your life when he calls you to these desert places and then the pressures begin to mount. And what happens when the pressures begin to mount? That's the moment that you begin to cry out to God. Look all through the Bible. Every time the pressures mount, God begins to wake up somebody's heart. When people's hearts begin to wake up, what do they do? They start to call out to God. God, where are you? What are you doing? Please show up. And that is when in every account of Scripture, the mighty hand of God begins to work. And that is when in your life, the mighty hand of God begins to work. God doesn't begin to work his mighty hand and his mighty plan when we are lulled to sleep. He works after he awakens our hearts. And he awakens our hearts through pressures. And once our hearts are awakened, and God is not afraid to use discomfort to awaken our hearts, then we cry out, and God is faithful. He answers when we cry out. But that's next week's message because we're going to see the people cry out. I want to just give you a little encouragement. There's a story in the book of Matthew because this is Jesus in the Exodus. So turn to Matthew chapter 2. There's a story in the book of Matthew. And it shows us that God can relate. In Matthew 2, we see the visit, the, the visit of the wise men, the magi, and these three wise men. We don't know if there's three, but they bring three gifts, so why not three? Besides, 20 of them makes the nativity quite a mess. And so the, these guys show up. And, uh, and they come saying that we've come to see the king. We've followed this star. The star helps us understand there's a king here. They come, they find the king, and the king is a toddler more than likely, if baby, somewhere between baby and toddler. And they begin to give these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They give these gifts. So now this little poor family is rich, gold, gold frankincense, and myrrh. They now can afford cable. Or they can at least afford, like, um, Paramount Plus, and they can watch like Yellowstone and 1883. And so they, they can at least afford a little bit of that. But then what happens? They leave, and in verse 13, now when they had, a, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, 
Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And this is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is just, tonight is like a teaser as we get into this. What we see in Jesus' life is a meta-narrative of the whole of scriptures. In those few little verses, we see a third of the book of Genesis take place, and it leads us into the book of Exodus. God calls a faithful man to leave his home. That's exactly what he does with Abraham. And he takes them down to this foreign country called Egypt because that's the place you survive when there's a famine. Well, the famine is going to be that Herod is going to come and kill all the babies the age of Jesus. There will be a famine. There will be without children. And so God calls him down to Egypt, and they stay for an unknown amount of time. There's no time given. God doesn't say, and in two years and six months, you can come back. Hey, mark this on your calendar. You'll come back on this day. It's an unknown amount of time. That's exactly what, was, what Joseph's story was. Joseph didn't know if he would ever leave. He didn't know if he would get to leave when he was old. He didn't know, but he knew they weren't supposed to stay there. That's all he knew. Joseph knows they're not supposed to stay there, but they are supposed to go there. And so Joseph takes Mary and this baby and they are displaced and they take the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh and now they have the money to pay for this trip and they go to this place and we're not quite sure how long they stay. It's a couple of years, a few years, they stay down there. And then look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. What's the land of Israel? It's the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the promised land. It is the Exodus story right there. Go and go to the land of milk and honey. And so they, he arose, verse 21, and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. And so that he, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The story of Jesus as a young, young boy is a direct parallel to the end of Genesis and the beginning of the Exodus. God calls us to hard places. And he doesn't tell us how long we're going to be there. But it is by his goodness that he calls us. And while we're there, we are to be faithful and fruitful. And when God calls us to the next place, will be ready to go, and it's to fulfill his purpose and his glory and his mission that people might know him. In the book of Hebrews, it says, do you not know that you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with all your weaknesses? 
There's no way those Israelites could possibly know that one day Messiah would come and retrace their journey and relive it out. And the only reason he did that is because we have a God who relates. I want you to think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph. They had no Bible. As best we can tell, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had no Bible. They had no Christ Covenant Young Adult Tuesday gathering. They had no Will Carlisle. Like they had, I mean, what would they do? They had none of that. Uh, did you know they didn't even have a name to call God? And yet they trusted that he was good and that he would see them through the desert he put them in. I want you to flip back with me as we wrap up tonight to Genesis 50, verse 20. Because some of you need to wrestle with the fact that it is God who brought you to the desert and he deems it necessary, but he also means it for your good. Think about Joseph's story. This is Joseph's line at the end of his life, speaking to his brothers who were the ones who he could have said, you put me here. But instead of saying that, here's what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Then he goes on and he says, so do not fear. I'm going to provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly. When Joseph was called to go down to Egypt, God meant it for good. When Mary was called to carry the Son of God and endure the scorn and the shame and all those whispers that people made about her, God meant it for good. When Jesus, who was the perfect spotless lamb went to the cross and took our sins and suffered horrendously, God meant it for good. It's not by your might or your power or any other thing except the Spirit of God that will deliver you from the deserts that God takes you to. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 6 said, Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. I challenge you tonight as we worship. It's a, kind of a strange way to respond in worship, but here's my challenge for you. I challenge you to square up with the fact that no human did those bad things to you. Now, humans may have been involved. No thing puts you in that spot that God couldn't have stopped. I challenge you to square up with the fact that God has put you in the places that you've been and let you see and do the things you've done. He's brought you to those desert places 
and he is simultaneously good. And he is working out his plan. And his plan involves you, and that is wonderful. But his plan is bigger. When we stay the course and God finishes his work, people see Jesus and they are drawn to him because of what he has brought you through. That's the faithfulness and the beauty of God. So tonight as we worship, there's going to be a prayer team right over here. Feel free to go over and talk to them. They'll pray with you. But I challenge you to believe and to trust that it is God who has let these things happen, brought these things to pass. And while people may have meant it for evil, God means and works good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let me pray for us. Father, it's a heavy thought to think that you were the one that orchestrated Joseph ending up in Egypt and all those things that happened to him, Lord. You could have stopped any of them, but you didn't. And Lord, I thank you that you finished the work in Joseph's life. And Lord, you meant it for good. And as a result, Father, eventually the line of David came and then the line of that, that led to Jesus, Father. And now we can worship the risen Lord. I thank you that you are faithful and you are good and you fulfill your promises. Lord, would you help us to dare trust you when you have brought us to a desert place? May we stay still and may you finish the work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.